Our scripture reading this morning is a brief one, starting in Luke chapter 20. This is uh, page 879 in the church-provided Bibles. Again, Luke chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? If we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Uh, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left, no children, and died. 
Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for the pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put, into two small, put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Short little text, like Colton said. <clears throat> I'll remind you guys that God tells us through Paul to Timothy, I believe, to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Because this is God's Word, and it's good for us, and we want to read it publicly. So, way to endure. Someone get Colton the Gatorade after, after all that. Thank you, Colton. Uh, good morning. Welcome, church family. Welcome to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you're visiting with us for your first or second time, hey, I'm Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. Would love to meet you after service. If you want to meet and know more about our church, one little quick thing I'll tell you about our church is we normally just preach through books of the Bible here. Sometimes we'll do an occasional topical series, but if you're looking to join a church and you want a church that just preaches through the Bible, that's what we do here. So you heard the text just read is everything I'm going to try to preach in less than an hour. I think I can do it. Um, but let's, let's ask the Lord for help. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we, we do thank you again for another Sunday morning to gather with your people. We acknowledge that, Christ, you are the cornerstone. You have all authority in heaven and earth. You are worthy to be praised. You are Savior and Messiah. You are King and your Lord. We love you and we treasure you. We thank you for the way that you've proved your love for us through your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We declare that you are ruling and reigning even now. You are the head of this church. Help us continue to worship as we um, receive your word now. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
want you guys to imagine a scenario with me. Imagine you're driving here somewhere in Windsor at night. You're driving down the road and you see a car on a side street. And as you pass the car, the car turns in behind you and starts following you. All of a sudden, you see a single red emergency light spinning behind you, signaling you to pull over. And you're like, oh, no, you know the feeling. Your heart sinks. Like, I didn't think that car that I just pulled in front of was a cop car. But you, you pull over, and the usual, I don't know this from experience, but the usual really bright light that like blinds you, it doesn't get turned on. And so you look in your rearview mirror, and you can tell this is not a police car. It's just a single light that's been like suction cupped to the top. And then a man comes up to you in street clothes and asks you for your license and your registration. What do you do? What are you thinking right now? What do you want to know about this man? You want to know, is this man really a police officer? We've heard weird stories of impersonators who pull people over. They're bad guys. So you'd probably ask this police officer, can I see your badge first? I really want to see your badge. I'm nervous. I don't know if you're, you are who you say you are. And to push the illustration further for the sermon this morning, let's say he does have a badge and it looks legit. It says, Officer Sanchez, Miami PD. <laughs> what are you thinking then? Dude, this isn't your jurisdiction. That's a big word, but we hear it in movies and shows a lot. I'll define it for you. Jurisdiction means the extent of the power to make legal decisions and judgments or the territory or sphere of activity over which the legal authority of a court or an other institution, a police department, extends. So think of extent and territory or sphere. You're thinking, okay, you might be actually be a police officer, but in Miami, you don't have jurisdiction here in Windsor, Colorado. We live in a world full of authority, full of spheres of jurisdiction. As humans, we care deeply about those who have been or who are in authority over us, don't we? Some of our deepest wounds and greatest joys come from those in authority over us. I think of coaches and family members. I would argue that we are our happiest when we know who is in authority over us and that they're good and trustworthy. When that's the case, we can gladly submit to their authority, can't we? And saints, isn't that the case with King Jesus? We've been seeing his goodness and trustworthiness all throughout Luke, also his authority. We, we know he's good and he's trustworthy and he has authority. We've seen it because we live after his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And the text this morning it will show that he, he's unstoppable, unchallengeable. He has heavenly authority. He's the only one worthy to lead the people of God and not the religious leaders of Israel. We've been seeing so many confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. We're going to see so much more of that this morning. Here's my argument for you guys. I hope you'll remember it this week. Since Jesus is the only one with the authority to lead God's people, we can gladly submit to him. It's a long text, so it's another long structure for you guys this morning. We will look at the source of Jesus' authority, the rejection and exaltation of his authority, his authority over the political, his authority over the theological, and then finally, the leader's lack of authority. 
we'll sprint through point number five. In the last few weeks, we have heard a lot of Jesus teaching through parables and teachable moments. We've seen interactions and responses to Jesus that are commended to us or implicitly tell us avoid this response to Jesus and this behavior. We've been a few weeks ago encouraged to be persistent in prayer, to be humble and to recognize our desperate need for God's mercy and provision. We've seen the necessity of turning away from self-reliance to full reliance on Christ. He's our Savior, Messiah. We need Him for salvation and transformation. And last week, we were reminded of His worthy reign as King. This morning, on the heels of Him cleansing the temple, remember the last paragraph from last week, He cleansed the temple, He kicked the people out and said, You've turned my Father's house into a den of robbers. He'll be making statements about his identity as the Messiah, and we'll see many interactions between him and the Jewish leadership in our text this morning. And remember this, just a quick reminder, this is his final week. This is called Passion Week. He's a few days away from dying on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. In these interactions, we're going to see the religious leaders try to trap him, asking him where his authority comes from. They'll try to trap him politically, asking about paying taxes to Caesar. They'll try to trap him theologically, asking him about the resurrection. And in Jesus' responses, he will show that they are unqualified to be the leaders of Israel. That not only can they not trap him, but he traps them and shows them and us their lack of authority to lead God's people. So let's look at this first interaction, the source of his authority. We'll look at verses 1 through 8. In this scene, it says that Jesus is teaching in the temple, preaching the gospel, and the chief priests, scribes, and elders come up to him. Now, this is important. Chief priests, scribes, and elders were a part of what's known as the Sanhedrin. Some of you have heard that term before. The Sanhedrin was the supreme council of Jewish elders, which consisted of 71 men. Probably not all 71 are here, but a delegation of them. There were scribes, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, and their chief officer was the high priest. They exercised religious, civil, and criminal jurisdiction. And so they say to him in verse 2, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. In ancient times, rabbinical authority was always derived authority. They would say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, or Rabbi this and that says this. As religious leaders, the answer they were hoping for from Jesus was something like, which rabbinic school did Jesus study in, or which rabbi was backing his ministry? But as many of you remember, Jesus starts many of his sentences in the Gospels with, truly, truly, I say to you, he spoke as one with authority. He didn't derive his authority as a rabbi from some well-known dead or living rabbi. His authority came from somewhere else. But Jesus knows these guys. He knows their hearts. He knows they don't actually care for a real answer. They're just trying to undermine his influence, his authority, his jurisdiction over the people. So he responds with a question of his own, which was common in the day for rabbis to do. And so he says, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now Jesus traps them with his question. Either answer that they could give, they don't want to give. 
They explain their rationale. First, in verse 5, they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? John the Baptist spoke the truth. He was a true prophet. He called Israel to repent of their sins and be baptized. And the religious leaders did not submit to, to God's call through John. And more than that, John testified who Jesus is. He says in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God. When he's looking at Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So if the leaders admitted that John's authority was from heaven, they would have had to admit that so was Jesus. But they also say, well, but if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. But on the other hand, they feared the people. They lived in this fear of man, fear for their lives even, that they thought they'd get stoned. It seems many people believed John the Baptist was a true prophet. So if the leaders denied that, they thought they'd get stoned. They were stuck. They were trapped. And so we read in verse 7, they say, well, we don't know where it came from. And Jesus responds, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The leaders weren't genuinely concerned about Jesus' authority. They just wanted to undermine him. <clears throat> One author says this, they had turned revelatory potential into a calculated dilemma. Man, they had this chance again, yet again, to see Jesus Christ for who he was, and they didn't want to. This was just a calculated dilemma that they needed to figure out how they could get out of it. As one pastor has put it, they were merely concerned with their power, their position, and their pocketbooks. Jesus' authority is a supernatural authority. He has authority in and of himself and delegated authority from his Father in heaven. He's the only one with authority to lead God's people, then, now, and forever. The Sanhedrin did not have any desire to submit to Jesus' authority. They just wanted to maintain their own. Jesus' authority needs no human source. It's not from humanity. No, no pastor or scientist proving who he is or where his jurisdiction is. And Christians, we can gladly submit to him. Even in the face of fear, unlike the Sanhedrin who feared the people, we never need to fear people in order to obey King Jesus. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, we've been saying this a lot through the Gospel of Luke. I encourage you not to be like the Sanhedrin. Don't turn revelatory potential into a calculated dilemma. If you want to find ways not to submit to Jesus as the authority in your life, you're going to find those ways. You're going to find articles. You're going to find podcasts. You're going to find books. I encourage you to, to look at Jesus for who he is. Study the word. Come talk to me or one of the other pastors or community group leader here. The Sanhedrin wanted to, as it were, kill Jesus and take his inheritance which is his point in the next parable. We'll look at the rejection and exaltation of his authority in verses 9 through 19. 
So we heard read in the parable, a man plants a vineyard, he gives it to tenants to take care of it, and then he goes into another country for a long while. Remember last week I said, don't overinterpret the parables. God didn't go away. He's very involved in the affairs of men. So when the time to gather fruit came, the owner sent his servant, servants to get some of the fruit, but the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. So he sends a second servant. They beat him, treat him shamefully, and send him away empty-handed. So he sends a third servant. Him they wound and they cast out. Then the owner talks to himself. I'm glad I'm not the only one who does this. And he says in verse 13, well, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But the tenants don't respect the son at all. They say, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they throw the son out of the vineyard and kill him. And Jesus asks, and I think this is the main thrust of the parable, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And they say, no way. But Jesus quotes Psalm 118 verse 22 which says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118 was quoted last week as well, remember? The crowd said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic psalm. And therefore, again, when Jesus uses it, it's a self-reference. They've rejected him, but God has exalted him. This short parable spans a vast amount of time. It's a parable about the history of Israel all the way up to the life and death of Jesus Christ. The man represents God the Father. The vineyard represents Israel, the people of God's kingdom. Remember, a good definition of God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Often throughout the Old Testament, God likens Israel to a vine or a vineyard. And Israel, for much of redemptive history, were God's covenant people. Among them, God's blessings and promises were enjoyed. The tenants mainly represent the leaders of Israel, although the leaders can often be representatives of all of Israel as well. The three servants represent the prophets, and the beloved son represents Jesus. Good job. Israel was God's people. Her leaders were were meant to lead the people in faith in God's promises and obedience to his commands, but they continually fell woefully short. So many times throughout redemptive history, God sent prophets to call the leaders and the people back to covenant faithfulness to bear fruit for God, but they often treated the prophets shamefully and sent them away. Some they killed. So finally, God sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, co-owner of the vineyard, thinking the leaders would respect him, but instead they would kill him. And Israel's leaders and Israel would have their tenantship revoked, and the vineyard would be given to others, not only Jews, but Gentiles and a new humanity and a new covenant people called the church. The leaders are the builders that rejected the cornerstone the tenants that killed the son. But Jesus is the son. He has the authority to lead God's people. He's the one who deserves the fruit of the people of God, and he's the one through whom judgment will come. 
He says in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone, the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That verse is saying the same thing in different ways. Kind of like if you stub your toe on an anvil, bummer for you. And if the anvil falls on your foot, bummer for you. The fate is not good, no matter how the stone comes into contact with the unbeliever. And the leaders were, were not accepting him. They were stumbling on him. They had rejected his authority, but God had exalted him. And they knew that this parable, he spoke against them. So they wanted to lay hands on him, but yet again, they feared the people. Friends, I would remind you again, if you're, if you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins, to call you to a life of living for him, to bearing fruit for him. In the next couple scenes, we'll see Jesus' authority over politics and theology. First, his authority over the political, verses 20 through 26. Verse 20 says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they start with some serious flattery. I read something pretty profound this week. It said, gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face. And flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. So they say in verses 21 and 22, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? What's ironic is everything that they said in verse 21 is true. They don't mean it, but it's all true. Jesus speaks and teaches rightly. He shows no partiality. He truly teaches the way of God because he's the one with authority. But here they are taking a page from Jesus' book. They're trying to trap him between a rock and a hard place as he did when they asked him where his authority is from. If he were to say yes, it's lawful for Jews to pay taxes to Rome, then some of the nationalist Jews who saw him as a political Messiah would realize that their political ambitions wouldn't be met and maybe they wouldn't want to follow him anymore. If he says no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, the Sanhedrin can go straight to Rome, tell them that Jesus is telling people not to pay taxes, in which case Rome would swiftly kill Jesus for inciting a revolt. But Jesus perceives their craftiness, their cunning, their trickery, and tells them, show me a denarius. That was a Roman coin that was used to pay the tax. It had a picture of Caesar on it, which said something like, Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustus, divine God, or something I read this week. And so Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they respond, Caesar's. And Jesus says in verse 25, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. They can't trap him. He's too smart. His jurisdiction is even over the political realm. He has authority over it. Jesus was not an insurrectionist or a zealot. He recognized, because he's God, that government was instituted by God. I believe that. We can read Romans 13 as well. God invented government, and it's not wrong to pay taxes to governments in order for them to govern. But the state's authority is beneath God's authority. 
Jesus' authority transcends earthly governments. The little things like money and earthly governing belong to the state. All authority of everything, including humanity, belongs to God. The denarius had the image of Caesar on it, so it belonged to Caesar. Human beings have the image of God on us, so we belong to God. And Jesus' answer blew them away. So they said they weren't able to catch him in anything they said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Jesus' authority is over the political. And that is great news for us, maybe just a little young pastor coming into 2024. Jesus is King of kings, and he's Lord of lords. And saints, I I hope and pray for this church that we remember that in 2024. I don't want to be dramatic at all. The Lord will give me strength and us strength. But to be honest, if I'm allowed to, which I think I am up here, I've been enough and no one's yelled at me, I'm nervous to be a pastor in 2024. It's so divisive. We, we put so much stock into who the next president of the United States is going to be. And I think we should vote. I think we should want to see biblical morality and ethics enacted in our country. But remember, there's a king of all kings, a lord of all lords, a president of all presidents. And I believe in other places of the Bible, it says he's sovereign over who gets put in office. He's in control. Their authority is under his. If they do bad, they got to answer to him. If they do good, it's for his glory, whether they acknowledge that or not. May we please, church, I'm praying for us that we remember that in 2024. Trapping him politically didn't work. So what about theologically? Let's look at his authority over the theological, 27 through 44. The next test is from the Sadducees. I learned something in Sunday school that I'll never forget. I'm going to pay it forward to you. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. (laughs) Thank you. Wow, I got some laughs. Sunday school teachers, what you do comes just a lot of times in plants and here and here. You remember the Sadducees' bad theology now by their name. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. So they come up with this question that is meant to show the resurrection is a crazy idea. And to do so, they bring in an Old Testament command called Leverite marriage. They explain it in verse 28. Basically, the Old Testament law said if a man died, his brother was supposed to marry his wife and have kids to carry on his name. And so the Sadducees say, what's going to happen if there are seven brothers? They all die, but they had married the same woman. They didn't leave any offspring. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You can picture them rubbing their hand. We got you now. And Jesus, I picture him responding very calmly and in modern terms saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. Literally no idea. He tells them that their theology of heaven is no good. Marriage, at least horizontal marriage is something for this age, not in the age to come. So he says in verses 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Friends, God's word teaches that marriage is temporary. It's only for this life. Ephesians 5 says that it's meant to be a picture of Christ's love for the church, of Christ and the church. 
Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. So when we're in heaven, the only marriage that matters will, between, will be between Christ and his people. There's great hope and encouragement and excitement for that, isn't there? I want to speak to those of you in here who, who maybe have experienced a divorce in your past, or maybe you're going through one right now. I'm here for you. I love you. So are the pastors. We don't believe divorce is the unforgivable sin. We know it's not God's design. It breaks his heart. But I would remind you that maybe if you're going through it right now, this is a season where you long deeply for the true and better husband, Jesus Christ. Don't you? You long for Jesus to be with him, to experience the perfect marriage that we're going to experience in heaven. And I can say, even those of us who are married, Audrey's great. We have a great marriage. But I long to be, have experienced that marriage with Jesus, to be in perfect intimacy, us together with him. Can't wait for the day. Jesus shows that horizontal marriage won't be a part of the age to come. And then he proves that resurrection will be. He makes sure that he corrects their theology. So he says, verse 37 and 38, but that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. For God to call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob implies that they're still alive. If they no longer existed, God would not call himself their God. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living for all live to him. They can't respond to Jesus except to say, Teacher, you have spoken well. And it says they no longer dared ask him any question. His authority is over the political and it's over the theological. He is God, the Son. He created the world. The language that he speaks is reality. So saints, if he says that faith in him will lead to your resurrection and glorification with him, it's guaranteed. He will be your God. You will be his people. You will get a new body. The final example in this passage of his authoritative teaching and over theology is his comments about Christ and the son of David in verses 41 through 44. Jesus circles back to his authority as Christ and the son of David. Now he has a theological question for them, which we don't even get to hear their answer. He wants to know their view on how the Christ is David's son and quotes another messianic psalm to make the point. He cites Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It seems the religious leaders didn't understand that the messianic son of David, if you remember, that's a reference to the Davidic covenant where God promises David that he'll have a son who will sit on his throne and reign for forever. It'll be an eternal kingship. And that, that son of David wouldn't only be a son of David, but David's Lord. The son would be the son of God and not just the son of David. And therefore, like I said, would be David's Lord. If the religious leaders don't understand the identity of the son, how can they recognize him when he comes? This makes us think back to the parable. If you don't know what you're looking for in the son, how can you claim to know who he is and, and give him some of the fruit of the vineyard? 
Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of David, David's Lord, and our Lord. So finally, let's look at uh, Israel's leader's lack of authority in verse 45 through 21.4. Jesus warns all the people here, beware of the scribes. They only care about the praise of men and their money. They don't truly care about anyone but themselves. The leadership is not qualified to be the leaders of the people of God. They love their power, their position, and their pocketbooks. They will receive great condemnation. But look at the poor widow. Even she would be a better candidate to lead God's people. She gave sacrificially, trusting that God would take care of her. Is it a stretch to say she trusted his jurisdiction over everything so she could joyfully give all that she had? Because she knew he would take care of her. Because she could... She had been freed to give sacrificially. Friends, Jesus Christ has all authority. You may have heard the amazing quote from the Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim mine. But we also know he's good. He's trustworthy. He is love. Our king died for us. He has authority to forgive our sins. Remember when we read that in Luke 5, when he's healing the paralytic? It says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Praise God he has authority to forgive our sins. That's not all, though. You know the famous verse in Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He has authority to tell us to to make disciples of one another and of those who don't know him, to share this gospel with others. He has authority to resurrect our bodies. His jurisdiction is over everything. Christians, is there any part of your life that Jesus Christ does not have authority? Is there any area where you still hold on to control? Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension, enables you to let go of that and gladly submit to him in everything. He died to enable us to treasure his authority, to submit to it joyfully, and trust that when he says someday we will be resurrected, We will be. We can trust his word. He's never been stopped. He's never been shut up, never caught in a lie. He's unstoppable. He's undefeated. His kingdom will never end. And when the world seems like it's falling apart, remember Jesus stands forever. His jurisdiction has no end. There's not one square inch of this whole universe that he doesn't say mine. Jesus is the only rightful one to lead the people of God. Any other human, every other human falls short. We don't ultimately follow a person. No pastor, no pope, no guru. 
We solely and gladly submit to the authority of the one who lived, died, rose, and ascended for us and for God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. We declare it again, Jesus, you have all authority. We love you and we want to live for your glory. We praise you that you lead us. You are the head of the church. You are the cornerstone. Lord, we we receive you joyfully, gladly. We thank you that we see in your word that you're not just all-powerful, but not good, because then you'd be one to be feared. And you're not just good, but not all-powerful, because then you couldn't do anything good for us, but you have all authority, and you're all good, and you're loving, and you're gracious. You've saved us, and we praise you. Pray for those here with us, Lord, that haven't submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ first through the repentance of their sins and faith in Christ, that they would do so even here and now. And For we, your people, Lord, just pray that your spirit would show us any areas of our lives where we have not submitted to your authority and that we would do so. We love you. We praise you. We pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen.